1: I like the title for this section given in the New International Commentary on the New Testament. Chapter 4 in that volume begins with the heading, Exhortation to Firmness in the End Times. That's good. That's exactly what this is. Now, remember, the apostles understood the end times as being the entire period after the ascension of Christ and before his triumphant return. The apostle John, for example, could say, Children, it is the last hour. Now, as Peter will remind these people in his next epistle, there is no accounting for the divine sense of time. He says in 2 Peter 3.8, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. So God's sense of time is different than our sense of time, but we know it is the last hour because there is nothing left to do in terms of the great acts of our redemption. Jesus has done it all. We are supposed to announce his victory, but there is nothing left to be done that would in any way add to it. So the Lord could return at any time. The only reason he hasn't returned is because of mercy. Peter will say in 2 Peter 3.9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So the Lord is delaying his return to give as many people as possible the chance to hear of Christ's victory and to embrace him as their Savior and Lord. The throne of Christ is parked just above the clouds of heaven, ready to descend with a thud to the earth at any time. Therefore, in the time between, which is the last hour or the end times, we need to expect a fair bit of turbulence and resistance. God will shake things up from time to time so as to upend the soil, And facilitate our sowing. There will be birth pangs and outbreaks. Expect seasons of great advance and seasons of violent resistance. This is how it goes in the time between, and Peter wants his people to be prepared for that. He wants them to be wise, and he wants them to be firm. That's what this chapter is all about. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We, we are, after all, following a crucified Messiah, Peter reminds them. Therefore, any thoughts of living your best life now ought to be abandoned. I've never understood how we got from a naked crucified Messiah to our best life now. That That is just not the rhythm of the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is about down before up. It, it's about the cross and after that glory. That's the way it was for Jesus. And Peter is saying, that's the way it will be for you. Are you better than the master? Do you deserve better treatment than he received? No, obviously not. So, Arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Don't expect your best life now, and you won't be disappointed when you don't get it. Expect to live most of your life on the margins of polite society. You believe, Christian, a bunch of things that regular secular people find distasteful. So don't expect that having a little fishy decal on the back of your car is going to earn you any favors with the police. Don't don't expect that wearing your Jesus t-shirt to the restaurant is going to get you a better table. Christianity is not an inside track to influence and popularity. Why would you think that it is? After all, Jesus was crucified naked on a cross. Arm yourself with the same expectation. Anything short of that, and you are being treated better than you deserve. That's the mindset you need to have as you go about your business in the big bad world outside. Now, I'll tell you this. As North American Christians lose their grip on power and privilege... We need to recover this basic mindset lest we completely destroy our witness in the culture. There has been more belly aching and complaining and more hostile antagonistic rhetoric coming out of Christian churches and Christian pulpits over the last several years than perhaps at any point previous in our history. We are not losing our privilege gracefully and we need to do better. The past 200 years of more or less unrelenting favor for Christians in the Western world has been an anomaly. We had no right to expect that. And we have no right now to protest the loss of that because we were never promised that Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same expectation. How do you get from that to the expectation of perpetual favor in the culture? According to the Bible, Christians should wake up every morning expecting to live at the margins of society. Hebrews 13, 12 to 13 says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Close quote. So outside the camp on the margins of the culture is exactly what we were told to expect. Being shoved out there, being dragged out there in some cases after 200 years on the inside is traumatic, I grant you. But you need to get over it. We all need to get over it, and we need to get on with it. Besides, Peter says suffering can actually be good for you. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He says that in verse 2. So a little bit of suffering can serve as a much-needed shock to the system. It can break the hold of sin. And refocus the church on the mission she was given. Peter further develops that idea in verse 3. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We don't have time for that kind of thing, Peter says. We have an urgent mission to pursue, and we don't know how much time we have left. Jesus could return tomorrow, and think of how many people in this world have never even heard that he is coming. So put away your silly, childish nonsense and get in the game. Verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, They might live in the Spirit the way God does. Here we have another one of those Peter passages where the main point is fairly obvious, but some of the fine details are extraordinarily hard to figure out. The basic idea here is that the people of the world are going to be surprised and even offended by our failure to go along with all their worldly passions and pursuits. When we don't join the parade, they're going to be very upset. Failure to celebrate is often interpreted as judgment. And nobody likes to be judged. So people are going to turn on you. But don't worry about that, Peter says. Those people are going to have to give an account to God for their actions, as, of course, will you. So just do what you know God wants you to do. That's the main idea. But what in the world does Peter mean when he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead? Now, again... We don't have time to dig too deeply into this, but I'll give you the main options. There are three main options in this case. The first option is to understand Peter as saying that this is why we still preach the gospel even to people who are spiritually dead. You preach to everybody, even if some of those people have dead, unregenerate hearts, and therefore no chance of repenting and believing. You just keep preaching. You preach to everybody. The problem with this option is is that Peter never uses the Greek word "nekros" to refer to spiritually dead people. He uses it to refer to actually dead people. So the second option is to understand him as saying that this is why we preach the gospel even to people who heard it but never actually believed it and then went on to actually die. That doesn't invalidate our commitment to the mission. We we aren't in charge of the outcome of our preaching, so we're just going to do our job regardless of the outcome. Some people are going to hear us, reject us, and die in their sins. That could be what he means. In fact, plenty of commentaries understand him in that sense. The third option is to understand this as referring to the preaching of Jesus in Sheol. Again, I mentioned in the last episode that all throughout church history, it has been taught and believed that Jesus descended to Sheol, the realm of the dead, and rescued the souls of Old Testament believers and announced his victory to the angels, the fallen spirits there in prison. This is emphatically not a second chance at salvation. We need to understand that. Remember, the word gospel literally means an announcement of victory. So, many people understand Jesus as announcing his victory to the spirits in prison, but emphatically not offering them a chance to repent and be saved. Matthew Emerson says helpfully here, Christians in the first four centuries of the church were careful to clarify that Christ's descent is only liberating for the faithful. They did not affirm a post-mortem second chance for salvation upon Christ's descent, and they explicitly denied that Christ's descent saved all those in Hades, quote. So it could mean that Jesus went down to release the saints and to announce his victory, but it does not imply a second chance at salvation. Those are the three options, but as I said, we won't have time to sort through them all in detail here. Again, the main point of the passage, thankfully, is not in doubt. Peter is saying that the people in the world aren't going to understand you, They're going to be offended. They're going to turn on you when you start raining on their parade. But that's not your problem. Those people are going to have to answer to God for how they respond to your message. That's their issue. You just do your job. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. You could label this paragraph, ethics for the end of the world. It's fascinating to see what Peter emphasizes here. He says, first of all, be self-controlled. Don't get sucked in by the sensual temptations or by the pursuit of prosperity. All that stuff is a distraction. Be self-controlled and sober-minded. And above all, love each other earnestly. Don't turn on your brothers and sisters when the world starts putting the pressure on you. You're going to need each other. Oh, my friends, the devil has been at work in the evangelical church of late, dividing fellow Christians in advance of the coming storm. He wants us to hate each other. He wants us to mock each other and vilify each other over issues that do not even come close to qualifying as gospel issues. And if he can get us to do it on the Internet in front of all the neighbors, so much the better for him. Don't fall for that demonic nonsense. Listen, of course, I understand. If people are denying Christ, then obviously we need to separate from them. But let's be honest. Most of the divisions out there right now have nothing to do with the gospel. They have to do with personality, culture, and politics. So let's not allow the devil to use disagreements and differences over those sorts of things to divide and separate brothers and sisters in Christ. Because we're going to need each other before this season is over. So love each other earnestly and use your gifts, whether speaking gifts or serving gifts, use whatever you've got for the good of the whole and for the glory of Christ. Thanks be to God. Verse 12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The right attitude to have in a season like this is joy. You certainly shouldn't be angry. You're still being treated better than Jesus. You certainly shouldn't be shocked because you were told by Jesus that this would happen. So rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. But there's a catch. You have to make sure that you're suffering for your Christian faith. There are no rewards, no blessings associated with suffering that is of your own making. That doesn't count as persecution. That's just you being a knucklehead. If you're a meddler sticking your nose into things you shouldn't or sticking your thumbs into eyes you shouldn't and you face pushback for that, well, that's on you. There's no kingdom value in that. In fact, there may be kingdom harm. So you have to suffer justly. But if you do suffer justly, then don't be ashamed about that. Give glory to God. He has saved you and he has approved you under trial. That is the mindset you're going to need for the hour that is coming upon us. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. Peter seems to be referring here to a couple of well-known Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 9 and Malachi 3, most immediately. In Ezekiel 9, God sends an angel to mark off his people in advance of a terrible judgment. Once the remnant is marked or sealed, then the judgment of God begins to fall, and it starts with the household of God. The Lord says to the angel who will deliver the judgment, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Closed quote. That's Ezekiel 9, 5 to 6. So many people who looked like they were living very close to God are actually the first to experience fatal judgment. Malachi 3, 1 to 4 also clearly lies in the background. There the prophet says, Behold, I send my messenger to the Lord, that's Malachi three one to three. So, the Lord will come suddenly to His house with fire and soap, as it were. He will burn away some, and chastise and purify others. Which means, of course, that it might be hard to tell, at least initially, who the Lord is sifting, and who the Lord is sanctifying. That will only become clear over time. Verse nineteen. Therefore. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Submit to God's will and providential action. Let the scrub and the scour wash over you. Do your job, do good, and trust that if you are truly saved, if you are his child, then this remedial action by the Father will actually sanctify you and prepare you to shine like
0: the stars once again, that's into the word.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word.